Hello, left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners at the Best Ever Conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. LFI is opening the BEC with Passive Investing with Left Field Investors, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate, limited partners. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in Left Field this year, then imagine them both back to back. The Best Ever Conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing with Left Field Investors includes admission to the entire Best Ever Conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then, immerse yourself in the full Best Ever Conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on a regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing with Left Field Investors at the BEC. Are you looking for a way to invest in the lower minimum and participate in more deals? Look no further than our weekly deal webinars hosted in collaboration with TribeVest. With every deal we offer, left field investors have the option to join an open tribe, allowing you to invest for as little as $10,000. No need to meet the standard $50,000 minimum. Joining an open tribe is easy. TribeVest handles all of the setup, fund collection and distribution, and even provides K-1s for tax time. All you have to do is sign up. Stay up to date with LFI by subscribing to our emails and gaining Clubhouse access to join our deal webinars and open tribes. Don't miss out. In my experience, when you give a tenant something that they can be proud of, they tend to take better care of it. If you give them a piece of garbage, a lot of times they're gonna treat it like it's a piece of garbage. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. This is Chris Miles, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited to have Ron Lockhart with us. He's the co-founder of GSP REI and serves as one of the company's managing partners. His chief responsibilities include strategic planning and oversight of the company's vision, which we're going to hear a lot more about. He's also one of the co-hosts of the Real Estate Investing on Point podcast, which they just started up. It's just a few episodes in. Ron, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you here. And uh, the first question I always ask is, tell us about your journey. How did you find real estate? How did you get into single family homes? And then how did you make the decision to scale it up and do kind of a syndication slash fund model with, uh, with the single family homes? Sure, I'll uh, I'll try and give you the short version because it's really evolved over a 25 year career in real estate, and I've really touched uh, a lot of the different facets along the way. But but the journey started in the late 90s on the construction side of the business um, through a family relationship. I got involved in a construction business, uh, went on to develop my own construction company. We built single-family homes in uh, the the su su suburbs of Philadelphia and down at the New Jersey shore. And what I quickly found was, as much as I liked construction, 
I didn't really enjoy building houses for other people. Um, so we ventured over to the, the speculative side of it. We were specking homes, selling them. And through that, I really got into the investment side of real estate. I was a, I was a history major in college, so that really had no, uh, no, no real life, uh, real life application to what I was doing outside of, I did like historic architecture. I always, always found that fascinating. Um, so yeah, we, we continued to utilize our construction operation as we ventured into the investment space. And over time, we started buying more and more. And, and one thing that I found was we were really structuring our own loans. And I had a, a broker that I utilized in New York for our, our finance side or, or for our, our deals. And when I realized what he was making on them, I said, wait a second, you know, we're going to set up our own shop in conjunction with what we're doing. And he said, do me a favor, don't do that. Come up to New York and partner with me. So I actually spent three days a week in New York doing commercial and residential real estate finance. Um, and I continued doing that in conjunction with the rest of our business through 2008. And, you know, 2008 really forced anybody who was in real estate and really anybody who was in uh, in the world to kind of look at things a little bit differently. So we fortunately made it through 2008. We definitely had our our, our lumps and our scars. Um, continued in 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 running our investment business. We actually started consulting alongside of that and investing along some of the companies that we were consulting with. And fast forward to 2017. We developed a relationship, and this is my my short way slash long-winded way of getting to the affordable housing. We developed a relationship um, through a, a nonprofit that did work with HUD, and they were actually out of Arizona. And we became a, a qualified development services partner for the National Community Stabilization Trust and the NSI program, where we would get bank-owned uh, assets through the government that would have to be redeveloped, and you had to have one of two successful outcomes. They could be sold to an end user that met certain requirements from an income standpoint uh, and some other factors as well, or you could hold them for a six-month period, rent them out, and take them over um, long-term. And we were always the capital partner in, in this scenario. So we started looking at a lot of the assets that we were taking on and we, as we got closer to, to in 2019, we realized a lot of these made really good rentals. Um, and we started to see that demand increase more and more and more. So we started to shift our focus through from you know more of a disposition model to a buy and hold model. And we were already working in the New Jersey and, and Philadelphia areas. And we started really taking a good hard look at Baltimore, which has become a big focus of our operation. And we saw a lot of demand down there as well. And, you know, as we explored these markets, we explored the space more and more, you know, we started to realize affordable housing was arguably the biggest real estate problem in the country or crisis. Uh, you know, we have a massive shortage of affordable and workforce housing. Um, and we thought, you know, the way our company is structured, 
We have construction management in-house. We have property management in-house. We have acquisitions in-house. It really worked for us. Um, I'll be the first to admit uh, it's it's not sexy what we do, um, but the returns are, are very good, and it fits our strengths and our infrastructure. That's great. That's a, that's a great introduction, and, and I'd like to take a step back and just make sure we're all on the same page here. You talked about affordable housing and um, workforce housing. Are those the same thing? And can you explain exactly what, what that means? Sure. The, well, the workforce and affordable housing are a little bit different. Affordable housing is really defined by um, a, a potential tenant spending no more than 30% of their gross income on their rent. And in a lot of these metropolitan areas, the rents just are exceeding what 30% of their gross income is. And so the affordable housing, we really, we tie that more to the subsidized housing. So we do a lot of work with su- Section 8 and other subsidi- subsidy programs. Um, so that's the, the tenant that needs a little extra help. They're, they're paying, you know, so in some cases, they're not paying any of the rent. It's all coming from the government or they're paying a portion of it. Uh, the workforce housing, it's the tenants that real, that that their income is a little it doesn't quite meet the criteria, but they they still need that that I don't it's not lower income, but it's it's lower to middle income housing. So okay. they're very closely related. It's just slightly different in the definition. And the section section eight, can you talk about that and you know, I've heard people say, no matter what, you don't want any Section 8. And I've heard other people say, give me as much Section 8 as, as you got. And when I was an active real estate um, investor, I had a, a few properties that had some Section 8 units. And the nice thing was the the rent, you knew you were going to get paid, right? Because the, the government uh, would take care of that. And the the units, base, you, usually they were taken better care of because no one wants to lose their Section 8 ticket. Right. So can you just talk about the, the pluses and minuses or actually first tell us what Section 8 means generally and then the pluses and minuses of it? Yeah, sure. So Section 8 is is funded from the federal government through HUD. Uh, the program was actually originated through a housing act in the 1930s. But Section 8, as we know, it has really been around for decades. So it's you know, we get the question a lot of times of what happens if funding stops for Section 8. I, I Personally, I think that's highly unlikely. You know, it's been around again for decades through different administrations, different political parties in power. And as we continue to see housing become more and more of an issue, I think there's really going to be more and more of a need for it. Um, you know, when when you look at Section 8, you know, it's funny, you, you, you just said a lot of the things that I've always heard over the years. Um, but we found that we have probably fewer problems with Section 8 tenants than we do with some of our higher-end properties that are in a different por- portion of our legacy portfolio because we do own stuff that we've owned for years, you know, dollars $700,000 homes, and, and probably from a percentage basis from a, from, a, from a tenant standpoint, I've had more problems with the higher end than I've had with the lower end. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I tell people this all the time, whether it's Section 8, you know, middle market, high end, it really all starts with your screening of tenants. And we screen Section 8 tenants no different than we screen non-Section 8 tenants. You know, we want to make sure that 
their background checks, there are no issues there, no criminal activity, um, no court cases for past due rents or evictions or anything for that matter. So, you know, the quality of the tenant, it's whether it's Section 8 or non-Section 8, is just as important to us. Um, and to your point, you know, and this is a big argument that, that we use, um, yeah, there's, there's a very high demand and a backlog in a lot of these cities for Section 8 vouchers. And if you lose them, you're not getting them back. So there's an incentive for the tenant to take care of the home. If they pay a portion of the rent, to make sure they're paying a portion of the rent. So we really find, and we also find that there's a lot less turnover as well. You know, when a tenant gets in there, they don't want to lose the house. They don't want to move. They want to stay. So our experience with, with Section 8 has really been positive. Um, and, you know, when, when you're built like we are, we're already managing s- scattered site single family. So that really just fits in with our model. So I think a lot of the challenges that people have when it comes to whether it be Section 8 or anything else, when you you look at any sort of scale, it's do you have the ability to manage everything? Right. And I, I do want to get into that. First, though, I want to talk about the market you're in, because, you know, when, when you think about in what we do as passive investors, you know, we're mostly investing in all the growth states, the southern states, uh, Arizona, Florida, Texas, you know, and and um, we're people are always thinking with the big cities, you got to stay away from the big cities. Don't go to New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, right? And and that's where you are. So that's very intriguing to me. But can you talk about why Philadelphia and Baltimore? And I think you mentioned New Jersey as well. And and how you are able to be successful there? Because when I look at cities like that, I've always thought about this. It seems like most of the properties or most of the people living in those cities are renters. Yet. Everyone says, you know, in our kind of little niche of passive investing through syndications, everyone's like, oh, no, you don't ever invest there. So talk about the markets a little bit. Sure. So the probably the primary reason for or but for focusing on those markets, it, you know, A, they have to work and they have to make sense from a demand standpoint. There has to be a reason to go there. But secondarily for us, we're located just outside of Philadelphia. And when we invest in something, we want to be able to look, you know, touch, feel. Um, so Baltimore, New Jersey, Philadelphia, they're all accessible to us. We have our own crews there from a construction standpoint, our own people on the asset and property management side of things. And, you know, there's there have been a lot of articles coming out lately you know, it's funny you bring this up about why, why Philadelphia and Baltimore, like there's some of the markets that are getting a lot of the attention because there is such high demand. They are seeing rental growth. And one of the things that we've seen in both of those markets, you haven't seen kind of that hockey stick, you know, rental growth or appreciation per se from a property value standpoint which tells me it's much more stable and there's consistent growth. And that's what I like to see. It wasn't, this wasn't pandemic fueled. Like a lot of markets were pandemic fueled when you saw the appreciation, the growth and the rents as well. Um, You know, Baltimore last year, I believe the, the, uh, the appreciation was like 11%. So, and, and we don't, when we invest in a market, appreciation is certainly not our first metric that we look at because we're buying hold. We're not looking to sell these properties. We certainly factor it in, 
but I tend to take the 100-year appreciation rate of 4% per year if you stretch it out over time. And that's what we use when we model. And in our actual model in our growth fund, we actually use 2%. So we're extremely conservative the way we look at appreciation. We're really looking more at cash flow. Um, but those both of those markets, the rent has just been steadily increasing. And that's really tied to the lack of supply and the high demand. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd like to talk about the process and and the whole and how you find properties, what type of properties. When, when I was going out right out of college, I lived in Philadelphia and I lived downtown Philadelphia and they were all row homes, right? I had a I had an apartment row home that was four stories, but it was so narrow that when I got a pizza and I wanted to take it downstairs to the kitchen, I had to tilt the box because the stairs were so narrow. So, can you talk about are you buying properties in these downtown areas? And if so, what type of houses they are? How much are they typically worth? What kind of renovations? Just talk us through kind of the process, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So we buy primarily row homes in the metropolitan areas. Um, Because of the way we're set up, our ideal property is something that we're purchasing that is a complete renovation, where we're taking it down to the brick walls, we're reframing new wiring, new plumbing, everything. It's essentially a new home except for the exterior walls. Um, We find that that's one of the best ways for us to create equity in the properties. And our model, our our per-door model in those markets, specifically Baltimore, changes a little bit for Philadelphia because Philadelphia is a little bit more expensive. But Baltimore is our big focus at the moment. So I'll use that as an example. We want to buy a home ideally for ten to twenty thousand dollars. We want to we want to put into that home anywhere from ninety to one hundred and ten thousand dollars. And on average, they're appraising for one hundred and sixty five thousand dollars. And in most cases, they're appraising for more than that. But again, we try to be conservative. So we're creating a lot of equity when we can buy at those numbers and develop at those numbers. And one of the reasons we're able to develop at those numbers is because we do the construction in-house. If we were having to pay a third party, that would certainly change, but that's not the case. I mean, that's one of the strengths of our business. Um, the the homes, you know, and, and, and I've been in those homes in Philadelphia that you're talking about where, you know, you feel like you could bounce off of either wall. Um, when we take these these properties down to to the brick walls, we're reconfiguring them. You know, we're we're making the staircases wide. Everything has to be to code, and a lot of that's changed. So the the properties have a different look and feel, and and we have a pretty cookie cutter process. You know, we we use a lot the same colors, the same tile, but we put uh, quartz or granite countertops in. We put stainless steel appliances in. And, you know, th- this also ties back to the tenants. In my experience, when you give a tenant something that they can be proud of, they tend to take better care of it. If you give them a piece of garbage, a lot of times they're going to treat it like it's a piece of garbage. So we really, you know, not to say that we don't buy properties that are value add or a property that has an existing tenant that becomes really a pipeline deal for us that eventually we'll go back and renovate if it's in uh, the right area, if it's on, on a block that we own a lot of property. So we we don't just buy those full renovations. We look at other stuff if, if strategically it makes sense. Um, but our sweet spot is really getting a property that we can take down to the walls and build it back up. 
you said a property costs ten to twenty thousand dollars in Philadelphia. So or Baltimore, I'm sorry, Baltimore, uh, Baltimore. Sorry, still, how, what does that property look like when when you walk in? I mean, I can't imagine it's habitable if it's only. Set, are these like already boarded up, foreclosed, just empty properties, or are these actual? properties that someone was living in before. He's not living in those. The the other properties that I mentioned, like the value add opportunities where we may buy something for $70,000 that has a legacy tenant in there that the rent's going to be way below market. We'll run out the term of that lease, get the tenant out, then we'll go in and renovate it. Um, I'm saying our sweet spot is that ten dollars to $20,000 acquisition 100% renovation. I mean, those some of those houses that are ten to twenty thousand dollars. You know, roofs have collapsed, floors have collapsed. It's it's completely and totally uninhabitable. But that's where we create the most value. Um, we look at it almost like new construction, and that goes back to our roots. And we do buy lots for new construction as well. Um, so the more the more we can improve the property, the better. And that also helps with deferred maintenance. You know, if you can go in and you're you're turning over. Uh, essentially a brand new house, you can have a lot less maintenance problems. Hi, this is Zach Hafenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. At Rise 48, we've successfully purchased 38 different properties worth over $1.5 billion worth of real estate and gone full cycle and sold 11 different properties, drastically exceeding projections for our investors. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, and we're the group for you. To learn more about investing with us, visit our website at rise48equity.com and set up a call with us. Thank you. Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you're doing? Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left-Field Investor. 20 lessons learned for 14 years of investing in private syndications. This is by far the best book I've read on syndication investing. It's an easy to read book, chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. It is a must read. Whether you're a first time passive investor or a veteran, go to www.leftfieldinvestors.com books and click on the link to Avoiding Rookie Heirs as a Left Field Investor. If you are a passive investor, you got to read this book. So you you buy these properties, full rehab, make them, make them nice. They're worth, I think you said, 150, 160 grand after, after you're completed, um, roughly. What would that rent for in Baltimore? On the average, $1,600 to, to $1,650. That's, okay. That's our average rent. So we have some that are higher, $1,750, $1,800. We have some that are a little bit lower, fourteen fifty, fifteen fifty. Whether depending whether it's a two bedroom, three bedroom, four bedroom, we base our entire model when we're looking at acquisitions and we're projecting our average. We we take an average rent that's actually below our average. We take fourteen fifty, and we take an uh, an average after repair value of, of one hundred sixty five thousand dollars. So when okay. we model, we're we're more conservative. Right. We, and you're in the ballpark of the 1% rule, which is as a former person who used to buy you know, single family homes, I was always looking for the rent to be about 1%. The monthly rent to be about 1% of the total purchase price was kind of just a, if, if it was close to that, I would look further. So you're, you're close to that. And that's hard to find these days in, in, the, in the popular markets. Yeah. And, and again, this, you know, not everybody, we have 
what I think like to think of as a competitive advantage in some uh, markets like like Baltimore. You know, big big investors are not looking at this space because you know it's harder for them to make the numbers work because they have to rely on so many third parties, and they also have to be able to spend you know significant sums of money on acquisition. Like you take an invitation homes that you know they look to spend over a billion dollars a year on acquisitions. Their target is a much different product. You know, it's nationwide. They're about volume. They're obviously publicly traded, but they're not going to go into a city like Baltimore and 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 try and do what we do. It just wouldn't make sense. So we don't have to spend as much money and acquire as many properties to be very profitable. And do you get any subsidies or help from the uh, state or city governments? I mean, I'm sure they love what you're doing, right? You're providing, you're taking these blighted properties, you're making them nice and you're, and you're, um, you know, putting in, in tenants that, that might not otherwise be able to afford something like that. I know they do section eight and things, but do you have, are there any other government subsidies that help you out? So there are things that are available and right now we're actively looking, they're, they're opportunity zones. So you have to purchase the properties in specific areas. You know, right now we're vetting out a few new areas that we're going to start buying in to take advantage of some of the tax credits. And in some cases, there cases there's development money there as well. Yeah, that that's great. And then um, the property management. So one of the things that's difficult about single family homes and scaling is, you know, you don't they're not all right there. Like if you had a hundred units and it's a multifamily property, you're right there all the time, right? You, everything is done. But if it's a hundred properties spread throughout Baltimore. I'm sure you're trying to concentrate things, but can you talk about how the property management works, especially when you're talking about these single family homes that aren't always just all lined up on the same street? Sure. You know, and it goes back to how we're built and how we're structured. Um, you know, we have at our home office in Pennsylvania, we have our head of property management. And then in whatever market we're located in, we have another head of property management for that market. That person oversees all the property management there. We have agents that we work with for leasing that we have a multi-tiered vetting system. The agent vets it first, the market property manager vets it next, and then we vet it at the home office. Um, You know, because we have our own crews, construction crews, they also function as our maintenance crews. So at any given time, you know, we always have somebody available on call to go for, to handle maintenance requests. So for us, that's not really a big challenge. Um, you know, a lot of times we get that comparison between multifamily and single family. You know, I can make arguments for and against both when it comes to the property management side. You know, a large multifamily complex you know, also has the grounds to think of. You know, sometimes in a multifamily building, if one thing goes wrong, it can affect the rest of the building. Um, but, you know, on the flip side for single family, to your point, you know, it's scattered site. So it can be a little more labor intensive. But we don't find that that adds additional cost to our operation. And again, when you when you target the type of properties that we're targeting and you're you're turning over a new product, yeah, you get a lot. You know, there there are much fewer maintenance requests than you know if you're just kind of pardon the expression, you put lipstick on a pig. You know, 
those are the properties that you have a lot of problems with. So again, I think a lot of it, you, you kind of reap what you sow when you, you turn a product over. Right. And um, can you talk about, they're shared walls, right? On These are row homes, so shared walls, shared roofs with with neighbor properties that you may or may not own. Does that factor in? Are there concerns or there things that you have to figure out because you're sharing a roof and walls with other other owners? Yeah, so when, when we purchase a property and we do renovations, you know, the big thing you're going to look for is in the basements and the roofs. You know, is there a problem with the adjoining property that may cause a problem? And as long as we're protecting our property, like I'm going to use a roof, for example, from day one, we can mitigate any issues that the neighbor may have with their roof if our roof is properly repaired or constructed. Um, in the majority of the houses that we're, we're working on in the cities, we put sump pumps in. So if there's a water issue with the neighbor, it's not going to affect us. So those are the two areas where you 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 look for potential problems, and we look to mitigate that right from the beginning. Um, you know, a a loud or obnoxious neighbor, you can't quite control that, but you know, you can get that in a million dollar neighborhood. So that's true. Yeah, you know, certain things are beyond your control. That's true. And and what about debt? Are you using debt on these properties? And and do you um, once you finish the construction, do you refinance or do you have pooled debt for all of them together? Can you just kind of talk about any leverage that might be available? Sure. So we we fund this through a number of different avenues. We use our own capital. We have two different funds um, where we utilize capital from both funds, depending upon the structure. We also have two $15 million lines of credit that we can utilize as bridge capital. So it could be acquisition and construction finance. It can be utilized as a a delayed finance that if we have a number of projects moving forward that we funded with cash, we can go ahead and and do a delayed finance deal there. Um, And and our, our exit is always portfolio loans. So we put permanent refinances on all these properties once we hit, um, we, we like to use non-recourse loans. So they have minimum loan amounts. Um, the one lender we use on a regular basis, uh, the minimum loan amount is $2.5 million. But when we do larger uh, refinances, it helps us with the interest rates. So we tend to try and target more like $5 million in a refinance. Um, you know, everybody with the, the interest rates over the last you know six or eight months you know, has been dealing with that. And so we try to get as creative as we possibly can. Where in the past we would, on the on the permanent financing, we would use 30-year AM uh, mortgages almost exclusively. Sometimes now we'll use a, a 30-year, a, a 10-year loan with a 30-year AM, you know, in a balloon after 10 years. It brings the interest rate down. Um, so we're constantly watching the interest rate environment, what products are out there, and you know, and how we can you know use those to the best of our ability and fits our model at the be- the best. Um, you know, I came up in the late '90s. You know, this interest rate environment to me is is quite frankly, it's more normal. I think the last ten years we've had interest rates that have allowed investments to be successful that in the past would not have been successful. And I think that that's, that's really changing now. And I think that that's something that people are going to have to look 
forward with. You know, you got to really see the forest through the trees now. Um, you know, when we model our acquisitions and in our portfolio, we already stress our rates up over eight. So when when we saw this increase, it, it really wasn't impacting how our model functioned. <clears throat> Does it cut into your prop profit? Absolutely. Um, but our model is still very profitable, even with interest rates where they are. Our current uh, non-recourse loan we're working on right now is still in the high sixes. So, you know, we're pretty comfortable where we are at the moment. Uh, would, do I, would I like to see lower interest rates? Sure. But I'm certainly not counting on it. You know, we, we can't model like that. And, you know, our community is full of passive investors, limited partner investors who invest in syndications and funds. Can you um, talk about, like, how how does this affect LP investors? Meaning, we're used to investing in a multifamily property or a fund of multifamily, and this is very different. So how do we vet the operator, which is your company? How should a, if you were investing in as an LP, how do you make sure that, okay, this is the right company to invest with? And then how do you, how do we analyze the fund? Because usually we're looking at individual properties or a group of individual properties, and we're not going to go in and analyze each different home that you own inside the fund. So can you just talk about from an LP perspective, what we should be looking at, what kind of questions should be asked? Sure. You know, first and foremost, with any investment, you know, everything can look great on paper. And, you know, you the numbers can look fantastic. At the end of the day, everything boils down to execution. So, you know, taking a look at our operation, having conversations with us, you know, looking at any information we have on, on on our portfolio, you know, would help give you an idea of whether you think we can execute or not. You know, at the end of the day, I can tell you whatever I think somebody wants to hear, but but that's that's not going to get you to trusting that person or wanting to take a chance to invest with them. I think you got to take a good hard look and have a lot of conversations with them about how how they're structured, how they operate. You know, with us, you know, unlike, you know, a, a, a multifamily syndication, which tends to have a defined timeline, defined exit, you know, we're obviously investing in a lot of different properties. Um, and for that reason, we have our historical data that our model is really built around. So people can ask us specific questions, property level, you know, you know, how did, how did you come to these numbers? And and that's something that we can share that, you know, this isn't just pie in the sky. We didn't just run numbers on a market and put together projections. We we, we did this based of, off of our historical numbers. And I don't go back five years. We, we, I like to look at it in 24-month clips because markets change. You know, if you take into consideration, you know, the pandemic years, that skews things. So, you know, I encourage people to look, you know, trailing 12, trailing 24 to get a better idea of really how that market's moving. And especially since interest rates have had more of an impact over the last 12 months. Uh, so that's that's where I would, you know, I would start. And those are the questions I would ask. But at the end of the day, you know, again, I think it all boils down to execution. And I think you have to believe that the people you're investing with have the ability to execute. Right. Uh, that's a great point. And then you you mentioned you have two different funds. Can you talk about 
each fund, what the what they do, what the purpose is, and then also what's the exit for the LP? I know you said you don't plan to sell any of these properties, but at some point, you know, your LPs might like uh, might like their capital back. So, yeah. what are the options there, and and what is the typical cash flow? Just kind of give us an overview of the funds. Yeah, so the the first fund, the income fund, and this is our third income fund. We've already had two that have closed. That functions just like uh, basically, it's it's a preferred payment. It's structured more like debt. So it has one-year terms, three-year terms, five-year terms, and accompanying interest rates all the way up to 12%. And so, you know, your term's up, your capital comes back. Um, Our other fund, the growth fund, we had a lot of our investors over the years who have been in our, our income funds ask us how they could share in the upside. You know, they wanted tax benefits. They wanted to benefit from the appreciation. They wanted to benefit from the cash flow. So we developed the growth fund this year, which we launched in May, where our our limited partners share in 50% of the equity growth and 50% of the, of the cash um, or the profits. But it also pays a 6% pref along the way. So that's more, I know it feels a little bit like a syndication, but it's not really a syndication. Um, it's it's a, a five to seven year term. Um, we do allow requests for redemption after three years. Um, so if people want to get out early, they can. Um, we've had a really good response to that fund because it's a little bit different than what you're seeing out there right now. And the way we exit is through refinances. You know, when somebody, and that's built into our model. If somebody in five year, in year five says they want to, they want to exit, you know, we do that through refinances. I, I believe over seven years, the uh, the um, average annual return is about twenty two percent. It's got a pretty, it's got a over three times equity multiple after three years. Um, and again, that's all built off of our historical data. Okay, excellent. And is this for accredited investors only? It is, yes. Okay. Awesome. Well, this sounds really interesting. Um, the, the last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to? You cannot say the Real Estate Investing on Point podcast because that is, uh, that's that's your podcast. So uh, do, you have, do you have another one that you'd like to listen to? Yeah, I do. I like the Real Estate Syndication Show. Um, I enjoy that one. And you know, now that uh, we've been on this one, I'm going to certainly be uh, listening to this this one as well. So... Um, I think I mentioned to you before we got started, podcasts are kind of a new thing for me, but yeah. I, I get, uh, get in touch with them and listen to ones other than our own because I can't quite get myself to li- listen to the ones that we do because uh, it's a little <laughs> awkward listening to myself talk. Yes, uh, yes, I get that. But I am starting to enjoy them more and more because there's a lot of good information out there. Yeah, and, and being the host, you, you get all the good stuff because you can ask all the questions. And it's funny you mentioned the... Uh, real estate syndication show. And uh, I don't know if this is breaking news or not, but I'm going to be guest hosting on that one uh, moving forward. So you named the the two podcasts I like the best also. So I appreciate that. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And um, if listeners want to get in touch with you, learn more about uh, GSP REI, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, If you go to the website, gsprei.com, um, our, our primary contact for any sort of investor questions or any other questions is, uh, Peter Neal and you can find his information on the website. So, uh, gsprei.com, Peter Neal. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. It's fantastic. And, and I learned a lot. I appreciate it.
All right. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. I appreciate it. Thank you. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return. Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Visor.co. That was a great conversation with Ron. Um, just really interesting because it's something you know that we're all familiar with, right? Single-family homes. Most of them, most of us has lived have lived in one at some point or in time or another. And um, talking about affordable housing in in the East Coast, um, so I, I just was really interested in it. Um, you know, he Ron talked about affordable housing being the biggest problem in real estate, it, and it's true in so many places. You have big cities that. You know, people can't afford to live there anymore. So providing affordable housing is critical. And then you have other smaller towns, vacation towns and things like that that are also having issues. And, and it's just a big problem to find somebody solving it in, in a unique way is just is fascinating to me. And, you know, I, I used to own a bunch of single family homes. And one thing he mentioned was tenant screening is critical. And he has a, you know, a multi-pronged process to screen tenants. And I think that is the most important thing. I love that he does Section 8 because... As he said, no one wants to lose that voucher and that changes the behaviors. And then you throw on top of that that they're really doing effective screening of their tenants. And that's the biggest thing, right? You want to reduce move outs. And if people do move out, you want to make sure that they're not trashing the place and causing you a whole bunch of repairs that have to happen. So tenant screening is is critical. And doing the total rehab of the home, that is also critical, I think, because if you do the total rehab, you know all the mechanicals, everything is going to be set up and you're going to have a lot fewer repairs you know, when I was buying single family homes, we did the, you had to do the bare minimum, right? Because you had to make it work in your economics. And so sometimes you would have some of these repairs that you weren't expecting because maybe the, the uh, person who was doing the, the rehab for you didn't do the full rehab or didn't do the, all the things that were necessary. So I, I like that they're doing that and they do it. He said cooker, cutty, pro, cooker, cookie cutter process, right? So that means that they're putting the same stuff, the same paints, the same flooring, the same everything for all their houses. So all the co contractors they're using know exactly what goes where, and that just makes for efficiencies. But the thing I like the most about this um, this asset class is that they found a niche, right? They are in a market that there's probably not a whole lot of competition for buying these 10000 or even $70,000 homes because they are so intensive to to rehab. And they've got a really nice niche in the markets, everyone's you know plowing money into the smile states and the south and, and all these places that we are all investing. So when I see something like this, it immediately I think, okay, diversification, right? I can get asset class diversification, I can get market diversification, I can get operator diversification, and I really have a lot of you know diversification opportunities here because it's not something that we typically do. Now that also means the due diligence really has to be there because it's also not something I'm familiar with the way they're bundling everything together. But again, I am familiar with single family homes. So it's a very intriguing asset class. And I really regret the one question I didn't think to ask him until after we stopped recording. And then I asked him was, he's a Philly guy. So what is your favorite cheesesteak? And he said Jim's, which is on South Street, which 
I used to live off of South Street, so I am a fan of Jim's, but I was a little bit disappointed that um, that he didn't uh, say Tony Luke's, which is my favorite, but he did say they are all awesome, and on that, we are in agreement. So really enjoyed Ron on the show. Thank you all for listening. That's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show was copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.